take our Bible tonight, if you would please, and open them to Revelation chapter 21. And we have an opportunity again this evening to look at this chapter and to discuss the great hope that every Christian has, and that is that we live in the hope of eternal life. When you first came to Christ, I'm sure that in the gospel presentation that you were given, you were told that you could be saved from all of your sins, that you would escape the wrath of God. And I'm sure that somewhere in that presentation, you were told that you could have eternal life and that you could live with God in heaven. Many years ago, Dr. D. James Kennedy uh, came out with a systematic approach to soul winning that he called evangelism explosion. And I can remember listening to the, or watching the tapes of, uh, videotapes of Dr. Kennedy as he would do soul winning presentations. And one of the things he almost always said when he talked to someone he was dealing with concerning the gospel, he, he would say, if you were to die tonight, why do you think that God would allow you to go into his heaven? And so that's a part of a gospel presentation, telling people about heaven. Being saved from the wrath of God is certainly a good reason for us to receive Christ. But equally impressive is that having received him as Savior, that we will have eternal life. Now, one thing that I want more from my salvation, I want more than just to be saved from sin. I want more than just to die and pass out of existence. I want to go home to be with Jesus. I want, to, I want to live with him. I want to see him. And trusting in Christ in order to be saved from the wrath of hell, that's a very good reason. But our love for Christ becomes so deep when we trust him and that joy becomes so deep that the, the thrill of seeing Jesus in heaven outweighs the fear of dying and going to hell. Seeing Christ is the top. That's the, that's the ultimate for a child of God. So the gospel does include this promise, this great incentive that when we die, we will go to heaven. Well, the 21st chapter here is all about heaven. Thousands of sermons have been preached on this, and I suppose over the many years that there have been thousands of books that have also been written about heaven. Some of them are very fanciful descriptions, and they are wildly imaginative. So there's um, really no basis for a lot of what people say about heaven than just somebody's opinion. But here in this chapter, we have the real description of heaven. I was reading one author who said that what we read in the 21st and the 22nd chapters is sufficient. It doesn't require a whole lot of explanation. John gives us the best explanation that can be given. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so he tells all that man can tell. And so if you hear somebody that comes up with something different or something more about heaven than what we find in Scripture, you have to ask the question, where did you get your information? This comes from God himself. So this is what God wants us to know about heaven. And so we could read this chapter and be done with it. And then all of us could fold our Bibles up and then we could go home. We could do that, but we're not. Uh, preachers need to preach sermons and we need to make applications. And so it takes 
uh, quite a bit of time to deal with what takes only a few minutes to read in Scripture. It takes a long period of time for us to explain all about this. And so what we do that for is so that you will very carefully consider and think about what you read here. Now, I want to begin this evening, as we did in the last message, by looking at verses 9 through 11. We'll read those verses, and then we'll refer to more of these as we go through the message tonight. Revelation 21, verse number 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now, thus far in the messages we've, this series, we've, we've discussed the angels of the city. That's the first part that we talked about. John was spoken to by an angel, and this angel became his tour guide to show him the city of God. And this city is the New Jerusalem. It's the capital city of heaven. It's the home of just men that have been made perfect. It's the home of the bride of Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. And so the redeemed people of God will be the ones that will be in heaven. But also there are a vast number of angels that are present to attend to the needs of God's people. And they are there to worship God alongside us. Then next we discuss the appearance of the city. Verse number 11 says that the city is lighted by the glory of God. And whenever God's glory is spoken of in a visible way, it's always described as light. The Apostle Paul said that God dwells in a light that no man can approach. And so no mortal has ever seen the fullness of the glory of God. It's impossible to see God as he is. But when we get to heaven, we'll be given a new body. It'll be different and we'll be able to live in the presence of God. We'll be able to live in the light of his glory. And this whole city is lighted by God's glory. And that light shines above the the sun, the moon, and the stars. And so there is no need for any other light than the glory of God. So it's really unimaginable what God's glory is like. That's beyond our comprehension. If we could understand it, then we would understand God. That's impossible for us to do. We can't understand God. So the dazzling city, the, the glory of God shining through this is really beyond our imagination. John describes it as a jasper stone, and probably more familiar to us, what he's speaking of here is a diamond. So the city is a perfect diamond with perfect clarity. It's clear as crystal, and God's glory shines through it in a dazzling array of color. And then thirdly, and this is where we want to resume our study tonight. We've had a a little bit of this so far. But thirdly is the architecture of the city. Now we'll, we'll begin reading again at verse number 12. 
John says that the city had a wall great and high and had 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. I've given you three features of the city. First was the shape of the city, and it's shaped like a giant cube. Verse number 16 describes the length, the breadth, and the height of the city, and these are all equal. The measurements translate into about 1,500 miles on every side. And that means that the city of the New Jerusalem would be large enough to cover about two-thirds of the continental United States, and the city extends upward higher than 300 times the height of Mount Everest. Next, we talked about the the wall of the city, that it is surrounded by a diamond wall. Now, I have to tell you something about this. Uh, Last week, when we were talking about the wall of the city, I was kind of comparing uh, what we do with our houses and the fences and so forth that we build around our houses. And I was just talking about what bad shape that my fence is in and how my wife wanted me to get out and paint that, do something with it to make it look a lot nicer. Well, after the service last Sunday night, Chuck Hancock, who is here, and uh, maybe some of you know who Chuck is, but he went out the door that night and he said, I'm just really burdened about this. I've got to come and paint your fence. And I said, well, you know, you really don't have to do that. I mean, I was just using an illustration. I wasn't trying to get somebody to come and paint my fence. But he said, no. He said, I I really think that this is something I ought to do. I need to come and paint your fence. So uh, yesterday, he came out and... uh, get to start prepping for it then I thought well you know he came with a pressure washer and he was going to wash the fence down get the dirt off of it and get it prepared for stain but the fence was worse than he thought it was and uh, so he spent uh, I guess it was probably about six or seven hours pressure washing my fence and getting it all ready to put new stain on it and I just thought that was a great thing. I mean, here, here, he says, I just feel like I need to do this for you. And so you just, folks, remember this. I need the living room painted, and I need, uh, uh, my wife would like to see the stairs get touched up and all those kinds of things. Just lots of things around there that needs to be done. So if you really feel burdened about that, uh, you can come by, and I'd be happy to see you. I actually fed him dinner last night, too, so you might even get that. I'll give you a hamburger or something. But uh, we were talking about this wall that surrounds the city. It's surrounded by a diamond wall. And verses 17 and 18 describe this wall. It's about 6,000 miles long. That would be the distance around the city. 216 feet thick. And the material of the wall is jasper, which, again, as we stated last week, most people believe he's referring to a diamond. Thirdly, we discuss the symmetry of the dimensions, that this is a balanced city. God is the architect, and whatever God does, he does orderly. God has favorite numbers, and one of those numbers that keeps popping up here in the Scripture is the number 12. Number 12 is a very significant number to God. Now, someday we might want to get into a discussion about uh, 
the significance of that number. Why did God choose 12? Why didn't he choose 8? Why didn't he choose 14 or some other number? But God chose 12. And you see these numbers coming up in Scripture over and over again. You see the number 3 quite often, the number 7 often, the number 10 often, and the number 12. And so we see that in this Scripture. There are 12 tribes in Israel, 12 apostles that were chosen by Jesus. And in the New Jerusalem, this number 12 becomes a very prominent number. There are 24 elders that surround the throne of God in heaven. That's a multiple of 12. There are 12 foundations and 12 gates to the city. There are 12 angels that are at at each gate. The measurements are a cube, 12,000 furlongs on each side. The width of the wall is 216 feet or 144 cubits, which is 12 times 12. So 12 is one of the chief numbers. And I I suppose if you were to be able to strip down the walls in the New Jerusalem that you would find the rafters and the walls are 2 by 12 behind there or something, probably are. Well, we go on next then and we come to the foundation of the wall. The foundation. And the foundation or the wall is supported by multiple foundations. There are 12 of these foundations and we find them in verses 19 and 20. It says, And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth the tobaz, the tenth a chrysasoprasus, the eleventh or chrysasoprasus, the eleventh adjacent, and the twelfth an amethyst. Now, I'm not going to go into those different stones and tell you what all the colors of those are, but I just want to point out to you that these are represented here as a measure of the opulence of the New Jerusalem. One of the things that we usually don't think about when we think of a building or a home is the foundation. You don't think much about it because that's the part of the building that you don't see. A foundation is dug down deep into the earth and you pour concrete in there and it's an ugly, poor, gray material. And then when that concrete hardens, you cover that all up and no one sees it. I remember when my wife and I were looking at different houses before we bought the house that we live in now, we looked at a lot of different ones and there wasn't any of the realtors that that said to us, you know, what you really need to do is just check out the foundation of this house. I mean, this is the most beautiful foundation that you've ever seen. No, we didn't check out the foundation. I mean, we, we care that the house is built solidly. We care about that, but we're not concerned about the aesthetics of the foundation. I mean, the, the, the builder doesn't use expensive stone in the concrete. Now, my wife and I looked at some landscaping stones last summer, and, and I was just taken back by how much these things cost. But the builder of our house did not go and get expensive landscaping stones and put those into the concrete. And the concrete company doesn't care at all what the stone looks like that goes into their concrete. They just put it in there, they mix it all together, and they come out there and they pour it in the foundation. Then it all gets covered up. So nobody really cares about that. Now, I want to say something to you tonight, and uh, this is very, very theological. I want to talk to you about concrete. And this might be TMI for you, that too much information again like we gave this morning. But why is it that Californians are so mixed up on terminology. What you do not want is for someone to come out and pour cement in your driveway. 
And you don't want them to put cement in your sidewalk. Cement is a powder, folks. Cement is what you put in concrete that holds the aggregate together. There's no strength. Uh, hardly, there is some strength, but hardly any strength in the cement. The strength comes from the congregation of the aggregate that's put together. So you don't want to pour cement in a, in a sidewalk. You don't want to put cement on your driveway. You want to pour concrete. Concrete. So you call it concrete. Do that next time that you say that. Now, that's, that, we'll get that theological matter out of the way, and we'll go on to some more important things here. But we're not concerned about that, about that foundation as far as the looks of it uh, would be. But, but God is concerned about this. Why does he talk about the foundation of this city? Well, I think we're given this information because by what we read here, we, we do understand that it adds great beauty to the city. God doesn't cover this up. It's one of the most attractive parts, and it's not without its significance. Each of these stones that makes up the foundation wall is a massive gemstone. I mean, you would be so lucky as to be able to find a gemstone like these. When they go and mine for gemstones, if you can find just a little tiny one, you'd be happy. Just one of a, a few carrots. You know, you know what a carrot is? A carrot is about, it's, um, one, or it's 200 milligrams, which is seven one-thousandths of an ounce. That's what a carrot is. It takes 2,200 carrots to make an ounce. So we're not talking about these little bitty things here that you make, make rings out of, make your jewelry out of, something that you can hardly see. This is massive. These are massive gemstones, which tells us something about the opulence of, of the city, how, how, how much wealth is there. It's far beyond our comprehension so that we can't even think in these numbers. And there are some people who believe that when it talks about the foundation stones, that it means there's one foundation stone under each of the gates. Then there are others that say, no, it means that these foundation stones are one upon another. They're layered, and they go around the entire city, and you have these massive stones that, that undergird that wall that's 216 feet thick that goes all around this city. And folks, we're talking there about a foundation, uh, not even talking about the value of the wall, 1,500 miles high and 6,000 miles long, 216 feet thick, made entirely of diamonds. So we're talking about what God does with the outside of the city. And it just must be staggering. That, that alone is staggering. But to think about what God must have prepared for us on the inside of this place. But God is concerned about what he does with the foundation. And we look at the importance of foundations. If the foundation is not right, then the building isn't right. In your house, you might notice that there are a few cracks here and there, especially after an earthquake, and that's because the foundation has begun to settle. It becomes uneven. And so what happens? That causes cracks in the house. It may cause windows so they don't open right or doors to get stuck. So you don't underestimate the value of a good foundation. And this is what God says about the foundation of your faith. It's very important because if the foundation of your faith is not right, then your faith won't stand. It's like the foolish man that built his house upon the sand. When the storm came, there wasn't anything to hold it. And so the storms beat against it and the house was ruined. But then there's the man who built his house on the rock and he dug down deep. He went down deep enough to find the solid rock. And then that house was able to withstand the storm. And that's how our faith has to be. That's why we spend time studying the Bible. 
That's why we dig down deep into the Word of God. It's because the deeper that we go and the more that we learn, the greater that our faith is supported by what we read in God's Word. And that's why I believe that theology is so important for us. I want you to understand who God is. I want you to understand what God has done. We don't want to ignore what God says in his word because if we do, we'll be thrown around, we'll be confused. There'll be all kinds of false doctrines that we're, that we're, people are trying to teach us, tell us about, and we get just totally confused about what the truth of the matter is. This is why we have to, as again, dig our foundation down deep into God's word. It's one of the things that the devil likes to do better than anything is to confuse God's people. Now, the devil loses the battle when a person gets saved. I mean, he'll do everything that he can to keep people from hearing the gospel of Christ. But once they have heard and they have believed, then his next step is to try to confuse people about what they have believed. And if he can throw them off track, then he ruins their Christian lives. He, he ruins the influence that they have for God. And so we have to be very careful about this, that we, that we dig that foundation deep. People get... get uh, begin to doubt God about different things. They, they, if, they're, if they're not deep in the word of God, they begin to doubt their salvation. They doubt things about finances and they doubt the, uh, whether God really cares about them when they're going through trials. This is why you have to have a firm foundation. Your doubts are relieved when you know where to go and you know where to look and you receive the strength from God's word to make it through hard times. So God is very concerned about foundations. So what kind of foundation does he construct? Well, he builds on truth. He builds on those truths that were taught by the prophets, those things taught by the apostles, and all of that is true and set in order according to the chief cornerstone who is Jesus Christ. He is the rock. He's the solid foundation that our faith is anchored to. And that's why faith in anything else is not any good. Faith in faith is no good. Faith in yourself is no good. Faith in somebody's religious system is no good. The faith that it takes to see God and to be in heaven is the faith of Jesus Christ revealed in the living word of God. So you can see why God talks about the foundations of the new Jerusalem. And we're going to talk some more about the foundation in the the next message. So the foundations of this place, this is another one of the architectural wonders of the New Jerusalem. Now, fifthly, the Bible describes the gates of the city. The city is accessed by gates of pearl, verse 21. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. The divine architect has chosen a very unusual material to build the gates. Now, the walled cities of the ancient world had massive gates, and these gates were made of wood. They were thick, so they couldn't easily be broken down. And sometimes those ancient cities would have gates that were very ornate. I mean, the way that they were carved and so forth, the materials that were used, the wood that was used, they were very beautiful at times. But none of them could ever compare to the ornateness of the gates in the New Jerusalem. It would be hardly appropriate for God to build this great wall out of, out, of these, uh, out of diamonds and have foundations of gemstones and then to have the entrance to the city made of wood or, or some other material. But instead what God uses is the most costly materials that can be used. 
And you really have to, to consider this from looking at it through the, old, the New Testament people's the eyes, the way that they looked at it. The pearl was actually the most precious stone or most precious gem that you could own. A pearl, that was the very best, more valuable than any gemstone. A pearl, as you may know, is formed when a piece of sand gets into an oyster shell or some other uh, foreign matter gets into the oyster shell, and then uh, a pearl starts to form around that. And in the ancient world, a, a pearl was considered to be much more valuable because if you take a gemstone, it's man who cuts the facets into the stone. It's man who helps to beautify that stone by the work that he does. But a pearl is natural. You don't do anything to a pearl. You don't, you don't cut a pearl. You don't do anything like that. So when you find a pearl that's perfect, it's extremely, extremely valuable. So they thought that the pearl was the most valuable thing that you could own. This is one of the reasons why that Caesar wanted to conquer Great Britain. He wanted to extend his empire that far north because he'd heard about the, the oyster, the pearl fisheries that were in Great Britain. And so if he could do that, that would mean he could add a great amount to the wealth of the empire. So that's what Caesar did. He, he conquered Britain. Then when Jesus gave the parable of the pearl of the great price, this is what he says in Matthew 13. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. People argue over the meaning of the pearl in that parable. Does it refer to the kingdom? Does it refer to the gospel? Does it refer to salvation? Does it refer to the church? And there may be a sense in which you include all of those, but what I really think the Bible is talking about, what Jesus meant when he spoke of the pearl of great price, that he was talking about himself. Jesus Christ is the one who is worth giving up everything to have him. And I think that's really appropriate to consider that God chose the pearl to make the gates because the only way that you're ever able to enter into this city is to come by faith in Jesus Christ. He is the door. Jesus said in John 10:9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. And so I couldn't think of anything more thrilling than to walk up to the gates of the New Jerusalem and see that they're made of pearl. And those pearls represent Jesus Christ, who is the pearl of great price. And all of those that live in that city are able to go there and to go through those gates of pearl because they have already entered into Jesus Christ by their faith in him. Well, people would ask, is it really possible to have a pearl that this large? This large? And we're not talking about a small gate. I mean, even if you uh, had a small gate, it'd be impossible to make that out of one pearl. But these are gates that are most likely as tall as the city itself. You know, I think about pictures that people have tried to paint of heaven and they try to give us some kind of an idea of the pearly gates and they're usually, you look at them, they may be maybe a little bit higher in your head or whatever and they try to make a, you know, a, a view of that. But it's most likely that these gates of pearl are 1,500 miles tall. The city is a layered city. It's accessed on many levels. And so in order to get into that city and to access the different levels, you have to go in through different parts of that gate. So it's likely that it's probably a pearl that's 1,500 miles high. So how is that possible? How could you ever have a pearl that kind of size? I don't worry about that. You worry about that? I mean, if we're talking about God here. 
And, and we're talking about the city of the New Jerusalem. Everything about it is beyond imagination. So I don't have any problems thinking that God can do this. God is able to do anything. Nothing's impossible with him. And so this just gets filed in the category of these great wonders of heaven. And so if you have a different idea about it, you think that it's something different than this, then where did you get your information? Where did you get that idea? John says that every gate was one pearl, made out of one pearl. If that's what he says, then I believe what he says. Then we have another feature of the city, and this is in the second part of verse 21. Heaven is traveled on golden streets. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I suppose that we would become much more aware of how costly that this city is when we think of the value of gold right now. When I was doing this lesson, making this sermon a few weeks ago, at that time, I don't know what, the co- what, what gold is right now, but at that time, the cost of it was about $1,625 an ounce. I don't know how much gold that you have, but I'm sure that you wouldn't do this. You wouldn't go melt down your gold and roll it out and walk on it. I don't think anybody here is going to do that. And you think about all the gold that it would take to make the streets of heaven. I mean, here is this place that has a street that weaves all the way through the New Jerusalem. How much gold would it take to build that? How many interchanges have to be made? How much gold would it take to make every area of the New Jerusalem accessible? I've told you it's two-thirds the size of the continental United States. And then it's this multi-layered city that's so high. How much gold does it take? So again, you think about things like that and the numbers become just staggering to you there's nobody can sit around and calculate this stuff because at some point here the the numbers have no meaning to you you can't even think in these kinds of terms sort of like the debt of the united states what's a trillion here or there Uh, what difference does it make we just throw a trillion here and throw a trillion over there we don't have any idea how much a trillion is do you know that we don't have any idea we're people that are, think we've done something great or we're really blessed to find a $20 bill on the sidewalk. And here we're talking about trillions of dollars of debt in the United States. Well, this is why I think that God inspired the psalmist to write in Psalm 50 and just state it this way. He says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee. For the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Now, there's an expression of God's wealth that we can understand. We can relate to that. Everything that you see, God owns. He owns the wealth of the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, I read that, and then I read Revelation chapter 21, and what strikes me the most there is God's modesty. God's modesty. God says, you think that's impressive? You ain't seen nothing yet. That's the way God talks, perfect King James English, just like that. Well, then here's another thing about the streets of gold. They are pure gold. Everything about God is purity. He's pure righteousness. He's pure holiness. He's pure light. Everything that God touches is pure, and his gold is no exception. Gold is measured by impurities. I think most of you know that. Uh, 24 karat gold, that's as pure as gold gets. But 
pure gold is also very soft and so in order to make jewelry they will make long lasting pieces of jewelry what they'll do is they'll take the gold and mix it with some other metal so you have um, something for instance it's 18 karat gold that means that it's got six parts of some other metal that's been mixed with with the gold and one of the one of the metals that they use often mixing with gold for jewelry is copper you see, gold doesn't oxidize, and so there's only very special chemicals that you can use to dissolve gold. And so the acids in your body can't actually dissolve gold. So when your sweetheart buys you a gold ring or a bracelet, and you put it on your finger or your arm, and it turns green, then most likely the gold has been uh, mixed with copper. So you just say to your sweetheart, thank you so much for the thought. Green is my favorite color. So... Don't worry about this in heaven. The streets of gold in heaven are not going to turn green. In fact, the Bible says that this gold is pure enough that it's actually transparent. And that raises all kinds of questions that people might have. How could you have transparent gold? And if you had transparent gold, how are you going to be able to tell when you're walking on the street? That's a good question. I guess you're walking on the grass if you're not walking on the street. That's the only way I know. But uh, God's going to let us know that. God, God's going to give us a new body. We'll, we'll be able to tell where we are, what we're doing. We'll understand things in ways that we can't understand them now. Now, there's one more thing that I'd like to point out to you about the streets of the New Jerusalem. And if you live in Petaluma, uh, Petaluma, you'll be glad to hear this. Everybody that lives in Sonoma County, maybe everybody in California will be glad to hear this. But there are no potholes in heaven. You can't lose your car in a pothole when you get to heaven. Now, the reason I bring this up, because you might not know this, but there is a theological reason for potholes. I was talking about concrete a moment ago. Well, there's a theological reason for potholes. Potholes have their own theology. A pothole appears in the street because of decay. And so the best that they can build the roads and the, and the greatest amount of engineering that goes into it, the streets and highways of this world will always have to be repaired because they decay. They get worn away over time. Now, if you ever travel across Millbrae, which is the way that I go home usually after church, but you travel across Millbrae and you're thoroughly convinced there is no engineering that went into this road. And they come out to fix it, and they pour in cookie dough or something like that, and the blacktop is actually chocolate chip. I don't know, but it doesn't last very long. And, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a war zone over there trying to get through on, on Millbrae. Well, there's a, there's a theological principle there. It's decay. The theology of the pothole is that when Adam sinned, that God cursed the earth. And the very first thing that God did with Adam was to throw him out of the Garden of Eden and put a pothole in the road. In other words, in a theological sense, a spiritual sense, that Adam was no longer going to be on easy street. He had it good in the Garden of Eden, but he got outside and there were nothing but potholes. And so life is filled with potholes. And literally, the world, the streets have potholes because of decay. So the next time you're driving down the street and you hit a pothole, you remember what I said and you'll say, Adam did that. He's the one that caused that pothole. Without him, there would be no potholes. Now, sometimes people say, well, how do, you, how do you learn all this stuff? It's in the Bible. How do you remember all this? It's word associations. It's the pothole principle. See, the fall of man, you look at it as a pothole. And the only way that you can avoid hell is to have your potholes filled in by Jesus Christ. 
You get rid of potholes by trusting in Jesus. There's no other way to get rid of them. So, folks, that's just a little bit about heaven. We have, a, we have more to go. Heaven's going to be a wonderful place, and it is promised to every believer. I mean, it's sure thing that you get to avoid hell when you trust Christ as Savior. That's nothing to sneeze at. We, we do want to be delivered from hell. But I, I, I want more than just to avoid hell. I want to go to heaven. I want more than, as I said a moment ago, passing out of existence. I want to go to heaven. Now that I know Jesus, I want to live with him. I want to see him. And I, and I could say, just having Jesus save me, that would be enough. But to see him in glory, to see him in his glory, that's to get all the things that are attendant to his glory. And part of that is heaven. And I think there's something that we are really going to understand better when we get to heaven when we see that place, we'll really come to a, to a much clearer understanding of what it meant for Jesus to leave that place, to come here and go through what he went through to save unworthy sinners such as we are. We're going to just, we'll, we'll, I don't know, that's just something else we'll, we'll never stop praising him for, that he would leave a place like heaven to come and save us. And when you think about that, you just have to say, surely you have to say, hallelujah, what a Savior, that he came to do that for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for heaven. We thank you for what you've written in your word about this wonderful place. Lord, we can't understand it. Uh, we, we don't know. We just just can barely scratch the surface. Not even that, of thinking about what heaven is going to be like. But Lord, we're... So thankful that it's a place that you promised to us and we look forward to it. Just as someone told me the other night, I, I can't wait to go there. And I hope that everybody feels that way here. We can't wait to go there. So we thank you for it. We thank you for being our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand.